Chapter Four of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Four. To those few who saw Jonathan Zane in the village, it seemed as if he was in his usual quiet and dreamy state. The people were accustomed to his silence, and long since learned that what little time he spent in the settlement was not given to sociability. In the morning he sometimes lay with Colonel Zane's dog, Chief, by the side of a spring under an elm tree, and in the afternoon strolled aimlessly along the river bluff, or on the hillside. At night he sat on his brother's porch, smoking a long Indian pipe. Since that day, now a week passed since he had returned with the stolen horses. His movements and habits were precisely what would have been expected of an unsuspicious borderman. In reality, however, Jonathan was not what he seemed. He knew all that was going on in the settlement. Hardly a bird could have entered the clearing unobserved. At night, after all the villagers were in bed, he stole cautiously about the stockade silencing with familiar word the bristling watch-hounds, and went from barn to barn, ending his stealthy tramp at the corral, where Colonel Zane kept his thoroughbreds. But all this scouting by night availed nothing. No unusual event occurred, not even the barking of a dog, a suspicious rustling among the thickets, or whistling of a night-hawk, had been heard. Vainly the bordermen strained ears to catch some low night signal given by waiting Indians, to the white trader within the settlement. By day there was even less to attract the sharp-eyed watcher. The clumsy river-boats, half-wrapped, half-sawn lumber, drifted down the Ohio on their first and last voyage, discharged their cargoes of grain, liquor, or merchandise, and were broken up. Their crews came back on the long overland journey to Fort Pitt, there to man another craft. The garrison at the fort performed their customary duties. The pioneers tilled the fields, the blacksmith scattered sparks, the wheelwright worked industriously at his bench, and the housewives attended to their many cares. No strangers arrived at Fort Henry. The quiet life of the village was uninterrupted. Near sunset of a long day, Jonathan strolled down the sandy, well-trodden path towards Metzer's Inn. He did not drink, and consequently seldom visited the rude, dark, ill-smelling barroom. When occasion demanded his presence there, he was evidently not welcome. The original owner, a sturdy soldier and pioneer, came to Fort Henry when Colonel Zane founded the settlement, and had been killed during Gertie's last attack. His successor, another Metzer, was, according to Jonathan's belief, as bad as the whiskey he dispensed. More than one murder had been committed at the inn, countless fatal knife and tomahawk fights had stained red the hard clay floor, and more than one desperate character had been harbored there. Once Colonel Zane sent Wetzel there to invite a thief and outlaw to quit the settlement, with the not unexpected result that it became necessary the robber be carried out. Jonathan thought of the bad name the place bore all over the frontier, and wondered if Metzer could tell anything about the horse-thieves. When the borderman bent his tall frame to enter the low-studded door, he fancied he saw a dark figure disappear into a room just behind the bar. A roughly clad, heavily bearded man turned hastily at the same moment. "'Hello,' he said gruffly. "'How are you, Metzer?' 
I just dropped in to see if I could make a trade for your sorrel mare, replied Jonathan, being well aware that the innkeeper would not part with his horse. The borderman had made this announcement as his reason for entering the barroom. Nope. I'll allow you can't, replied Metzer. As he turned to go, Jonathan's eyes roamed around the barroom. Several strangers of shiftless aspect blurred at him. They wouldn't steal a pumpkin, muttered Jonathan to himself as he left the inn. Then he added suspiciously, Metzer was talking to someone, and appeared uneasy. I never liked Metzer. He'll bear watching. The borderman passed on down the path, thinking of what he had heard against Metzer. The colonel had said that the man was prosperous for an innkeeper who took pelts, grain, or meat in exchange for rum. The village gossips disliked him because he was unmarried, taciturn, and did not care for their company. Jonathan reflected also on the fact that Indians were frequently coming to the inn, and this made him distrustful of the proprietor. It was true that Colonel Zane had redskin visitors, but there was always good reason for their coming. Jonathan had seen during the Revolution more than one trusted man proven to be a traitor and the conviction settled upon him that some quiet scouting would show up the innkeeper as aiding the horse-thieves, if not actually in league with them. "'Good evening, Jonathan Zane.' This greeting in a woman's clear voice brought Jonathan out from his reveries. He glanced up to see Helen Shepherd standing in the doorway of her father's cabin. "'Evening, miss,' he said with a bow, and would have passed on. "'Wait!' she cried, and stepped out of the door. He waited by the gate, which the manner that showed that such a summons was novel to him. Helen peeked at the curt greeting, and asked him to wait without any idea of what she would say. Coming slowly down the path, she felt again a subtle awe of this borderman. Regretting her impulsiveness, she lost confidence. Gaining the gate, she looked up, intending to speak but was unable to do so, as she saw how cold and grave was his face, and how piercing were his eyes. She flushed slightly, and then, conscious of an embarrassment new and strange to her, blushed rosy red, making, as it seemed to her, a stupid remark about the sunset. When he took her words literally, and said the sunset was fine, she felt guilty of deceitfulness. Whatever Helen's faults, and— they were many. She was honest, and because of not having looked at the sunset, but only wanting him to see her as did other men, the innocent ruse suddenly appeared mean and trifling. Then, with the woman's quick intuition, she understood that coquetries were lost on this borderman, and, with a smile, got the better of her embarrassment and humiliation by telling the truth. "'I wanted to ask a favor of you, and I'm a little afraid.' She spoke with girlish shyness, which increased as he stared at her. "'Why, why do you look at me so?' "'There's a lake over yonder which the Shawnees say is haunted by a woman they killed,' he replied quietly. "'You'd do for her spirit, so white and beautiful in the silver moonlight.' "'So my white dress makes me look ghostly.' She answered lightly, though deeply conscious of surprise and pleasure at such an unexpected reply from him. 
this borderman might be full of surprises. Such a time as I had bringing my dresses out here, I don't know when I can wear them. This is the simplest one. And it's mighty new and bewildering for the border, he replied with a smile in his eyes. When these are gone, I'll get no more except Lindsay ones, she said brightly, yet her eyes shone with a wistful uncertainty of the future. We be happy here? I am happy. I have always wanted to be of some use in the world. I assure you, Master Zane, I am not the butterfly I seem. I have worked hard all day, that is, until your sister Betty came over. All the girls have helped me fix up the cabin until it's more comfortable than I ever dreamed one could be on the frontier. Father is well content here, and that makes me happy. I haven't had time for forebodings. The young men of Fort Henry have been, well, attentive. In fact, they've been here all the time. She laughed a little at this last remark, and looked demurely at him. It's a frontier custom, he said. Oh, indeed. Do all the young men call often and stay late? They do. You didn't, she retorted. You're the only one who hasn't been to see me. I do not wait on the girls, he replied with a grave smile. Well, you don't. Do you expect them to wait on you? She asked, feeling now she had made this silent man talk once more at her ease. I'm a borderman, replied Jonathan. There was a certain dignity or sadness in his answer, which reminded Helen of Colonel Zane's portrayal of a borderman's life. It struck her keenly. Here was this young giant, standing erect and handsome before her, as rugged as one of the ash-trees of his beloved forest. Who could tell when his strong life might be ended by an Indian's hatchet? For you, then, is there no such thing as friendship? she asked. On the border, men are serious. This recalled his sister's conversation regarding the attentions of the young men, that they would follow her, fight for her, and give her absolutely no peace until one of them had carried her to his cabin a bride. She could not carry on the usual conventional conversation with this borderman, but remained silent for a time. She realized more keenly than ever before how different he was from other men, and watched closely as he stood gazing out over the river. Perhaps something she had said caused him to think of the many pleasures and joys he missed, but she could not be certain what was in his mind. She was not accustomed to impassive faces and cold eyes with unlit fires in their dark depths. More likely he was thinking of matters nearer to his wild, free life, of his companion Wetzel somewhere out beyond those frowning hills. Then she remembered that the colonel had told her of his brother's love for nature in all its forms, how he watched the shades of evening fall, lost himself in contemplation of the last copper glow flushing the western sky, or became absorbed in the bright stars. Possibly he had forgotten her presence. Darkness was rapidly stealing down upon them. The evening, tranquil and gray, crept over them with all its mystery. He was a part of it. She could not hope to understand him, but saw clearly that his was no common personality. She wanted to speak, to voice a sympathy strong within her, but she did not know what to say to this borderman. If what your sister tells me of the border is true, I may soon need a friend, she said, after weighing well her words. 
She faced him modestly, yet bravely, and looked him straight in the eyes. Because he did not reply, she spoke again. I mean, such a friend as you or Wetzel. You may count on both, he replied. Thank you, she said softly, giving him her hand. I shall not forget. One more thing. Will you break a borderman's custom for my sake? How? Come to see me when you're in the settlement. Helen said this in a low voice, with just a sob in her breath. But she met his gaze fairly. Her big eyes were all aglow, alight with girlish appeal, and yet proud with the woman's honest demand for fair exchange. Promise was there, too, could he but read it, of wonderful possibilities. No, he answered gently. Helen was not prepared for such a rebuff. She was interested in him and not ashamed to show it. She feared only that he might misunderstand her, but to refuse her preferred friendship that was indeed unexpected. Rude she thought it was, while from brow to curving throat her fair skin crimsoned. Then her face grew pale as the moonlight. Hard on her resentment had surged the swell of some new emotions, strong and sweet. He refused her friendship because he did not dare accept it, because his life was not his own, because he was a borderman. While they stood thus, Jonathan looked perplexed and troubled feeling he had hurt her, but knowing not what to say, and Helen, with a warm softness in her eyes, the stalwart figure of a man loomed out of the gathering darkness. "'Ah, Miss Helen, good evening,' he said. "'Is it you, Mr. Brent?' asked Helen. "'Of course you know Mr. Zane.' Brandt acknowledged Jonathan's bow with an awkwardness which had certainly been absent in his greeting to Helen. He started slightly when she spoke the borderman's name. A brief pause ensued. "'Good night,' said Jonathan, and left them. He had noticed Brant's gesture of surprise, slight though it was, and was thinking about it as he walked away. Brant may have been astonished at finding a borderman talking to a girl, and certainly, as far as Jonathan was concerned, the incident was without precedent. But, on the other hand, Brant may have had another reason, and Jonathan tried to study out what it might be. He gave but little thought to Helen. That she might like him exceedingly well did not come into his mind. He remembered his sister Betty's gossip regarding Helen and her admirers, and particularly Roger Brandt, but felt no great concern. He had no curiosity to know more of her. He admired Helen because she was beautiful, yet the feeling was much the same he might have experienced for a graceful deer, a full-foliaged tree, or a dark, mossy-stoned, bend in a murmuring brook. The girl's face and figure, perfect and alluring as they were, had not awakened him from his indifference. On arriving at his brother's home, he found the colonel and Betty sitting on the porch. "'Eb, who is this Brant?' he asked. "'Roger Brant? He's a French-Canadian. Came down here from Detroit a year ago. What do you ask?' "'I want to know more about him.' Colonel Zane reflected a moment first as to this unusual request from Jonathan, and secondly in regard to what little he really did know of Roger Brandt. "'Well, Jack, can't tell you much. Nothing of him before he showed up here. He says he has been a pioneer, hunter, scout, soldier, trader, everything. When he came to the fort we needed men. It was just after a gritty siege, and all the cabins had been burned. Brandt seemed honest, and was a good fellow.' 
Besides, he had gold. He started the river barges which came from Fort Pitt. He surely has done the settlement good service, and has prospered. I never talked a dozen times to him, and even then not for long. He appears to like the young people, which is only natural. That's all I know. Betty might tell you more, for he tried to be attentive to her. Did he, Betty? Jonathan asked. He followed me until I showed him I didn't care for company, answered Betty. What kind of man is he? Jack, I know nothing against him, although I never fancied him. He's better educated than the majority of frontiersmen. He's good-natured and agreeable, and the people like him. Why, don't you? Betty looked surprised at his blunt question, and then said with a laugh, I never tried to reason why, but since you have spoken, I believe my dislike was instinctive. After Betty had retired to her room, the brothers remained on the porch smoking. Betty's pretty keen, Jack. I never knew her to misjudge a man. Why this sudden interest in Roger Brandt? The borderman puffed his pipe in silence. Hey, Jack, Colonel Zane said suddenly, do you connect Brandt in any way with this horse-stealing? No more than some and less than others, replied Jonathan curtly. Nothing more was said for a time. To the brothers this hour of early dusk brought the same fullness of peace. From gray twilight to gloomy dusk quiet reigned. The insects of night chirped and chorused with low, incessant hum. From out of the darkness came the peeping of frogs. Suddenly the borderman straightened up, and removing the pipe from his mouth turned his ear to the faint breeze while at the same time one hand closed on a colonel's knee with a warning clutch. Colonel Zane knew what that clutch signified. Some faint noise, too low for ordinary ears, had roused the borderman. The colonel listened, but heard nothing save the familiar evening sounds. "'Jack, what'd you hear?' he whispered. "'Something back of the barn,' replied Jonathan, slipping noiselessly off the steps, lying at full length with his ear close to the ground. "'Where's the dog?' he asked. Chief must have gone with Sam. That old negro sometimes goes at this hour to see his daughter. Jonathan lay on the grass several moments, then suddenly he rose, much as a bent sapling springs to place. I hear footsteps. Get the rifles, he said in a fierce whisper. Damn, there is someone in the barn. No, they're outside. Hurry, but softly. Colonel Zane had but just risen to his feet when Mrs. Zane came to the door and called him by name. Instantly, from somewhere in the darkness overhanging the road, came a low, warning whistle. "'A signal!' exclaimed Colonel Zane. "'Quick, Heb! Look towards Metzer's light! One, two, three shadows! Engines! By the Lord Harry! Now they're gone, but I couldn't mistake those round heads and bristling feathers!' "'Shawnees!' said the borderman, and his teeth shut hard like steel on flint. Jack, they were after the horses, and someone was on the lookout. My God, right under our noses. Hurry, cried Jonathan, pulling his brother off the porch. Colonel Zane followed the borderman out of the yard into the road and across the grassy square. We might find the one who gave that signal, said the colonel. He was near at hand and couldn't have passed the house. Colonel Zane was correct, for whoever had whistled would be forced to take one of two ways to escape either down the straight road ahead or over the high stockade fence of the fort. 
There he goes, whispered Jonathan. Where? I can't see a blamed thing. Go across the square, run around the fort, and head him off on the road. Don't try to stop him, for he'll have weapons. Just find out who he is. I see him now, replied Colonel Zane, as he hurried off into the darkness. During a few moments, Jonathan kept in view the shadow he had seen first come out of the gloom by the stockade, and thence pass swiftly down the road. He followed swiftly, silently. Presently a light beyond threw a glare across the road. He thought he was approaching a yard where there was a fire, and the flames proved to be from pine cones burning in the yard of Helen Shepherd. He remembered then that she was entertaining some of the young people. The figure he was pursuing did not pass the glare. Jonathan made certain it disappeared before reaching the light, and he knew his eyesight too well not to trust it absolutely. Advancing nearer the yard, he heard the murmur of voices in gay conversation, and soon saw figures moving about under the trees. No doubt was in his mind but that the man who gave the signal to warn the Indians was one of Helen Shepard's guests. Jonathan had walked across the street, then down the path, before he saw the colonel coming from the opposite direction. Halting under a maple, he waited for his brother to approach. "'I didn't meet anyone. Did you lose him?' whispered Colonel Zane breathlessly. "'No, he's in there.' "'That's Shepard's place.' "'Do you mean he's hiding there?' "'No.' Colonel Zane swore, as was his habit when exasperated. Kind and generous man that he was, it went hard with him to believe in the guilt of any of the young men he had trusted. But Jonathan had said there was a traitor among them, and Colonel Zane did not question this assertion. He knew the bordermen. During years full of strife and war and blood had lived beside this silent man, who said little, but that little was the truth, before Colonel Zane gave way to anger. Well, I'm not so damn surprised. What's to be done? Find out what men are there? That's easy. I'll go see George and soon have the truth. Won't do, said the borderman decisively. Go back to the barn. Look after the horses. When Colonel Zane had obeyed, Jonathan dropped to his hands and knees, and swiftly, with the agile movements of an Indian, gained a corner of the shepherd yard. He crouched in the shade of a big plum tree, then at a favorable opportunity vaulted the fence and disappeared under a clump of lilac bushes. The evening wore away no more tediously to the bordermen than to those young frontiersmen who were whispering tender or playful words to their partners. Time and patience were the same to Jonathan Zane. He lay hidden under the fragrant logs, his eyes accustomed to the dark from long practice, losing no movement of the guests. Finally it became evident that the party was at an end. One couple took the initiative and said good-night to their hostess. "'Tom Bennett, I hope it's not you,' whispered the borderman to himself, as he recognized the young fellow. A general movement followed until the merry party were assembled about Helen near the front gate. "'Jim Morrison, I'll bet it's not you,' was Jonathan's comment. "'That soldier, Williams, is doubtful. Hart and Johnson, being strangers, are unknown quantities around here. And then comes Brant. All departed except Brant, who remained talking to Helen in low, earnest tones. Jonathan lay very quietly, trying to decide what should be his next move. In the unraveling of the mystery— he paid little attention to the young couple, but could not help overhearing their conversation. "'Indeed, Mr. Brandt, you frontiersmen are not backward,' Helen was saying in her clear voice. "'I am surprised to learn 
that you love me upon such short acquaintance, and I'm sorry, too, for I hardly know whether I even so much as like you. I love you. We men on the border do things rapidly, he replied earnestly. So it seems, she said with a soft laugh. Won't you care for me? he pleaded. Nothing is surer than that I never know what I am going to do, Helen replied lightly. All these fellows are in love with you. They can't help it any more than I. You are the most glorious creature. Please give me hope. Mr. Brandt let go of my hand. I'm afraid I don't like such impulsive men. Please let me hold your hand. Certainly not. But I will hold it. And if you look at me like that again, I'll do more, he said. What bold, sir, frontiersman? She returned lightly still, but in a voice which rang with a deeper note. I'll kiss you, he cried desperately. You wouldn't dare. Wouldn't I, though? You don't know us border fellows yet. You come here with that wonderful beauty and smile at us with that light in your eyes, which makes men mad. Oh, you'll pay for it. The borderman listened to all this love-making half-disgusted, until he began to grow interested. Brant's back was turned to him, and Helen stood so that the light in the pine cone shone on her face. Her eyes were brilliant. Otherwise she seemed a woman perfectly self-possessed. Brant held her hand despite the repeated efforts she made to free it. But she did not struggle violently or make an outcry. Suddenly Brant grasped her other hand, pulling her toward him. These other fellows will kiss you, and I'm going to be the first, he declared passionately. Helen drew back, now thoroughly alarmed by the man's fierce energy. She had been warned against this very boldness in frontiersmen, but had felt secure in her own pride and dignity. Her blood boiled at the thought that she must exert strength to escape insult. She struggled violently. When Brant bent his head, Almost sick with fear, she had determined to call for help when a violent wrench almost toppled her over. At the same instant, her wrists were freed. She heard a fierce cry, a resounding blow, and then the sudden thud of a heavy body, falling. Recovering her balance, she saw a tall figure beside her, and a man in the act of rising from the ground. "'You!' whispered Helen, recognizing the tall figure as Jonathan's. The borderman did not answer. He stepped forward, slipping his hand inside his hunting frock. Brant sprang nimbly to his feet, and with a face which, even in the dim light, could be seen distorted with fury, bent forward to look at the stranger. He, too, had his hand within his coat, as if grasping a weapon. But he did not draw it. Saying a lighter blow would have been easier to forget, he cried, his voice clear and cutting. Then he turned to the girl. Miss Helen, I got what I deserve. I crave your forgiveness and ask you to understand a man who was once a gentleman. If I am one no longer, the frontier is to blame. I was mad to treat you as I did. Thus speaking, he bowed low with the grace of a man sometimes used to the society of ladies, and then went out of the gate. Where did you come from? asked Helen, looking up at Jonathan. He pointed under the lilac bushes. "'Were you there?' she asked wonderingly. "'Did you hear all?' "'Couldn't help hearing.' "'It was fortunate for me, but why—why why were you there?' Helen came a step nearer and regarded him curiously with her great eyes, now black with excitement. 
The borderman was silent. Helen's softened mood changed instantly. There was nothing in his cold face which might have betrayed him a sentiment similar to that of her admirers. "'Did you spy on me?' she asked quickly. After a moment's thought, "'No,' replied Jonathan calmly. Helen gazed in perplexity at this strange man. She did not know how to explain it. She was irritated, but did her best to conceal it. He had no interest in her, yet had hidden under the lilacs in her yard. She was grateful because he had saved her from annoyance, yet could not fathom his reason for being so near. "'Did you come here to see me?' she asked, forgetting her vexation. "'No. What for, then?' "'I reckon I won't say,' was the quiet, deliberate refusal. Helen stamped her foot in exasperation. "'Be careful that I do not put a wrong construction on your strange action,' she said coldly. If you have reasons, you might trust me. If you are only— Shh! He breathed, grasping her wrist and holding it firmly in his powerful hand. The whole attitude of the man altered swiftly, subtly. The listlessness was gone. His lithe body became rigid as he leaned forward, his head toward the ground, and turned slightly, in a manner that betokened intent listening. Helen trembled as she felt his powerful frame quiver. Whatever had thus changed him gave her another glimpse of his complex personality. It seemed to her incredible that, with one whispered exclamation, this man could change from cold indifference to a fire and force so strong as to dominate her. Statue-like, she remained listening, but hearing no sound, and thrillingly conscious of the hand on her arm. Far up on the hillside an owl hooted dismally and an instant later, faint and far away, came an answer so low as to be almost indistinct. The borderman raised himself erect as he released her. "'It's only an owl,' she said in relief. Her eyes gleamed like stars. "'It's Wetzel, and it means engines.' Then he was gone into the darkness. End of chapter 4